All right, thanks, Josiah. Hey, so, you know, we've said every week, right, we're in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is the perfect book for the times, the seasons that we find ourselves in. Uh, really all over the world, right? And so um, just a little review to help you understand what we read today. So uh, Daniel and his friends have found themselves in a place they never expected to be. They didn't want to be there. there. They were carted off from their home city of Jerusalem against their will and taken to Babylon, and they're forced to serve this pagan king, this king who does not know or love God. So they find themselves in a city, in a culture they don't want to be in. And one day, the king of this city makes a statue. And uh, it's not just a kind of a small, out-of-the-way thing. This is a big deal, right? And what the statue stands for is left pretty vague in this story, really. Uh, there's no name given to it. And because Babylon's taken over many peoples, there are many, uh, it's a very cosmopolitan city because a lot of people have been taken there against their will, right? And so uh, whatever this statue was, it was probably meant to represent the power and the might of the Babylonian Empire. Uh, so it probably didn't recommend a God. That, in other words, this wasn't a really probably a religious deal. This was probably more of a political deal. It was about uniting people around the power of the kingdom of Bab Babylon. And so the king orders the coronation of this statue uh, that when the, when, when the music starts, everybody would just bow down and worship this image of gold uh, that he had set up right and then literally in verse 7 of this chapter it says as soon as they were hearing the music uh, they were bowing down it was like there was a race to see whose knees could hit the floor the fastest right but there were three men and three men alone who refused to bow their knee to this image whatever it might have represented and we know these three men in this story is Shadrach Meshach and Abednego, right? And so they reply to the king and they say, look, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve, he's able and he, he will save us from it. He will rescue us from your hand. Now, we said last week that the reason these three men lived with such faith and so little fear, that one of the reasons they were able to be so courageous um, was because God was bigger, right, than the power of Nebuchadnezzar. God was bigger than the crowd. God was bigger than Babylon, and they knew that. Even though Babylon represented the most powerful culture and the most powerful nation the world had ever seen to this point in history, they knew their God was bigger. And so they said, our God is able. We want you to know, O king. But they don't stop there. They, they're about to make a statement of devotion that will take your breath away. And I just want to remind you that these were not three young men, and they were young men. These were not three young men who'd had an easy life. Their life had been extraordinarily difficult. And when you read uh, from Daniel chapter 1, you see this very, very clearly. They'd had a very, very challenging and a very difficult life. But yet they're still acknowledging our God is able to save us from the furnace. We believe he will. And then in verse 18, they make one of the greatest statements of faith found in all of the Bible. They say, but even if he does not... Even if he does not, we will not bow down to the image that you have erected. And we said last week, right, that we live in a world where sometimes God does not. 
But when you meet someone who has decided that they will serve God even when he does not, it's life-changing. I mean, you never get over meeting people like that. And I asked you last week to be that group of people. I asked us to be a church that would make the decision beforehand that even if God did not, that we would not shrink back or fall back, but that we would be as devoted and that we would be as courageous as these young men were, right? So kind of a big, big deal. Um, and then today, I want us to dig a little bit deeper into this statement, just kind of turn it over a few times and draw some conclusions together. So I want us to think about what these young men have said to the king. So, because it sounds a little contradictory, these are words we probably wouldn't use in this day, and I'll talk about why in a moment. Uh, so they're saying, look, our God is able to rescue us. We believe he will rescue us but he may not. He may not. Anybody see the little contradiction there? God's able to do it. We believe he'll do it, but he might not. Yeah, sure. At face value, this doesn't make a lot of sense. We would not, we would not say this in our day because in some circles, these words would be seen as a lack of faith. In other words, people would say, well, no, no, don't say that he may not. Don't acknowledge that. Don't speak that out because if you speak it out there, it's out there, right? And it's negative, and we want to speak faith-filled words. But that's not what these men are doing. Now, listen, here's, here's why it's so important that we think about this together. I would counter that adding the phrase, even if he does not, does not, is one of the great faith statements of the Bible. Listen, when people say, I have faith that God will blank, it could be anything. I have faith that God will blank. That is not faith in God. That is faith in an agenda. And there's a big, big difference between having faith in an agenda and having faith in God. Faith in God knows that God is able, but that sometimes he doesn't, and that even when he doesn't, he is still good, he is still sovereign, and he is still in control. And these three men know that even if God does not save them, that he is still in control and that he is still good. So they say, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, when I look at this extraordinary courage of these three young men, I ask myself, how does a human heart get shaped like that? How does someone become that courageous? And again, we said last week, one of the things they do is they decide in advance, right? And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what happens to these three young men, and we're going to make some observations together. So Daniel uh, chapter 3, verses, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. Literally, it means his face toward them changed. In other words, they could see the veins in his neck. They could see the veins popping out. They could see in his face how angry he was at them, right? So he ordered the furnace heated seven 
times hotter than usual. Now you see this phrase every once in a while in the Old Testament and in ancient literature. It appears in the book of Proverbs quite a bit. So here's an example from the book of Proverbs. Though the righteous fall seven times, they will rise back up. This is kind of a formulaic way of saying, look, something getting maximized maybe to the fullest extent, right? In other words, what Nebuchadnezzar is saying here is heat that furnace up as high as it will go. This is kind of a Jewish or a Hebrew way of saying that. Um, now, And you know this, right? But to deliberately burn someone to death is historically one of the most inhumane forms of execution. Because what it involves is treating a human being like an object, like you might throw away and burn a piece of trash or a piece of wood. And I want to point out that often in our culture, people think they're going into the furnace or suffering or facing hardship for one of two reasons. And it's this. They say, well, either God is really angry at me, either I've done something really bad to displease God, and so he's punishing me because I'm going through this bad thing. I'm facing this furnace. I'm in the middle of this injustice. Or, well, I guess God, I'm just, I don't have enough faith. You know, I guess I just, you know, didn't believe enough, and so somehow this is what I'm experiencing, right? Now listen, one of the things that the cross shows us is that God is not angry with you. Listen, one of the hopes held out by the gospel is that um, Jesus took the wrath of God on himself so that you and I would not have to face the wrath of God. So because God has already poured his wrath out on his son Jesus at the cross, he's not angry at you right? That's already been poured out. So we can kind of scratch that one off the list. Bad things don't happen to good people because God is angry at them. In fact, we would even argue bad things don't happen to bad, bad people because God is angry at them. God already poured out all of his wrath on his only son at the foot of the cross. And I'd like to point out that these men aren't about to enter the furnace because they lack faith, they're about to go into the furnace because of their faith, right? Because of their devotion, because they're standing up for what they believe is right, right? In fact, one scholar says this may be the first recorded instance of religious persecution, the first written instance in history of someone being persecuted for standing up for their faith. And so they're carried to the furnace. They're bound up, they're tied up, right? And we don't know what they're feeling. The story doesn't tell us, but I just, wanna, I just want us to picture this moment because these were real people, and this really happened. This is history. So if you were about to be thrown into a fiery furnace, what would you be feeling? Even if you'd stood up for what was right, my guess is we would all be feeling a little fear, right? Oh, this is going to go really bad. Probably, they, I mean, clearly these men have faith, but that's probably mixed in with a little fear. How is this going to feel? How long is this going to last? Like, what's going to happen to me? I can feel the heat from here. This isn't going to be good. This isn't, right, going to be um, pleasant. 
So, uh, yeah, so they're, they see the men who were carrying them after they bound them up. They see these men collapse in the heat and die, and they're thrown into the flames. But they're not burning. They don't feel anything, right? And, and here's a truth I want us to wrestle with this morning. See, if the furnace represents suffering and hardship and all the injustice of our world and all the evil of our world, here's what I would want you to know. Nobody ever goes into the furnace on purpose. Nobody ever goes into the furnace on purpose. These men have to be tied up and thrown into the furnace. They're not willingly going into the furnace, right? I mean, the furnace is to be avoided at all costs. You might say you and I have grown up in a culture of what I would call furnace avoiders. Things like comfort and ease and pleasure and holidays don't prepare you for the furnace. But what if the furnace, what if the furnace is where I become like Jesus? What if the furnace, you know, what if there's no other way but the furnace? So this is kind of a, just kind of a story to illustrate this. So one night outside a small town, a fire started outside a chemical plant. And before long, the fire had exploded into flames and an alarm went out to, you know, volunteer fire departments for miles around. After the first volunteer uh, fire department got there and had been fighting the fire for over an hour, the chemical company president came out and approached the fire chief and uh, offered a reward of $50,000 to the engine company that could save the files, you know, inside, which contained all their secret formulas, right? This was before the internet and digital storage and hard drives and all that. Everything was in those files. Well, suddenly, from a distance, a long siren was heard. And another fire truck began to come into sight. It was a local fire company composed of men almost entirely over the age of 65 years old. And to everyone's amazement, this little fire engine raced through the chemical plant gates and drove straight into the middle of the inferno. The other firemen watched in utter amazement as these old-timers hopped off their rig and began to fight the fire with an intensity they had never even seen before. After an hour of exhausting labor, this volunteer company had extinguished the fire and saved the files. So Joyous, the chemical company president, announced he was going to double the reward to $200,000. And he walked over personally to thank, you know, each of these volunteers. So after thanking each of the old men personally, the president asked the group what they intended to do with the reward money. And the fire truck driver looked him right in the eye and he said, well... The first thing we're going to do is we're going to fix the brakes on this truck. Because nobody goes into the fire on purpose, right? Uh, yeah, we live in a culture where everybody wants to avoid the fiery flames. Everybody wants to avoid the, the furnace because we think of words like comfort and ease and pleasure. See, nobody ever goes into the furnace on purpose. And then a remarkable thing happens. 
King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, who do you think that fourth man was who can appear from nowhere, who can cheat death, and who looks in appearance like a son of the gods? And we get another clue in this story a little later when King Nebuchadnezzar is giving praise to God. He acknowledges that God has sent his angel to rescue these three men, his angel. Now, uh, scholars widely agree that when you, when you think about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, so for example, when Jacob wrestles the angel of the Lord, now certainly there are angels and God sends other angels, but there's a big difference between the angel of the Lord and other angels. Scholars agree that the angel of the Lord is, uh, almost all scholars agree that it's Jesus. That Jesus was the man who was wandering around in that fire. It was Jesus whose presence they knew and felt and experienced in that moment, right? See, they were hoping to get delivered from the furnace, but God decided to deliver them in the furnace and this is a truth that should change our lives friends because God says to them what he sometimes still says to men and women all over the world I will meet you in the furnace you don't have to go there by yourself you don't have to endure the furnace alone in that place that looks dangerous or causes you fear or causes you pain Jesus says I will be there with you I will meet you there I will never leave you I will never forsake you and I wonder I mean I wonder what these three men uh, what the rest of their lives were like we don't know this is the last time we will ever hear the names of these three men we won't see them mentioned again in the book of daniel we won't see them mentioned in the new testament we never hear from them again so i wonder i mean as they went through life right if they ever thought about how easily they could have missed being rescued in the furnace that moment when they met one like a son of the gods and I wonder if they lived to be old men, if they would get together at the local coffee shop, right, and talk about what happened to them together that day. And talk about those few moments that only they would know. No one else in the world had ever experienced anything like that. And how they, if they'd even thought about how one word spoken in fear, one knee bent to the wrong God, and they would have missed the adventure of their entire lives. They would have missed the fourth man in the furnace. They would have missed Jesus. They would have missed his presence. They would have missed his rescue, right? Now, here's a super important question I want us to think about for a few minutes. You ready? Look at me. Listen. Dial in. Why did Jesus save them this way? Hey, he could have just reached down from heaven like a big hand and pulled him out of the furnace, right? Or he could have sent a lightning bolt, right, and destroyed all the guys that were binding them up and they would have never even had to go in. Why did Jesus rescue them this way? 
Why does Jesus go into the furnace? He didn't have to. Listen, this is meant to be a preview of the cross. A preview of the cross. Um, Listen, in Christianity, and in Christianity alone, God enters into our suffering. No other religion... No other religion proclaims or teaches a God who suffers for and with mankind, except for Christianity, right? So let me make this clear. So in Matthew 13, Jesus calls the eternal wrath of God the fiery furnace. This is the same phrase that we see used here in Daniel 3. Jesus uses it in Matthew 13 in Greek. Here it's in Hebrew. He speaks it there in Greek. But it's the same phrase. Wrath of God is the fiery furnace. Right? So uh, the furnace is meant to tell us that Jesus goes with us. So here's what we need to know. Here's what we need to know. Only if you know that Jesus was thrown into the furnace for you, will you ever feel him walking in the furnace with you? This is so important, I'm going to say it again. Only if you know that Jesus was thrown into the furnace for you, that he took the wrath of God on your behalf, he took the wrath of God for you, will you ever feel him walking in the furnace with you? Furthermore, Jesus Christ suffered, not that we might not suffer, but so that when we do suffer, we might become more like him. More like Him, look more like Him, think more like Him, act more like Him, love more like Him, talk more like Him. And listen, here's what you need to know. There is no way to love without suffering. Suffering and love, there's, you can't divorce the two. If, if there is love, that comes with suffering. And I'm going to make this very, very clear to every single one of us. I mean, think of parents. Right? Every, every parent in the room that's been a parent for longer than about five minutes understands this. Think how parents sometimes have to suffer because of the choices that their children made or because they sometimes take a hard right. right? I remember when our daughter Jamie was diagnosed with lupus and we knew that that disease was attacking her kidneys. So let me ask you a question. Do you think that her mother and I suffered in the face of that diagnosis? You better believe it. Do you think for a minute that her mother or I wouldn't have taken that lupus on ourselves so that she would not have to bear up under the weight of that for the rest of her life? You bet we would have. We would have done it in a heartbeat because that's what love does. It was incredibly painful for us that she would have to go through that. And if many of you are parents, and you know this in many ways, when parents love their children, the happiness of those parents is often at least indirectly tied to the happiness of their children. Because love suffers. 
When you love someone, you suffer with them. It hurts, right? I mean, listen, the very nature of love means that we come to care about something or someone other than ourselves. And when we do, we, we hurt when they hurt. We suffer when they suffer, right? Listen, just yesterday I lived this out. So just yesterday... I went, to, I went to Plainfield, Indiana and moved my son and my daughter-in-law out of one apartment into a moving truck. I drove that moving truck across town to Greenfield, Indiana. I unloaded that moving truck, carried every bit of that furniture up a flight of stairs. Did I mention it was almost 90 degrees yesterday? If I left that out, you need to know that part of the story. Carried all that stuff, emptied out that moving van. I was exhausted. How many of you think I just loved going and doing all that? Yeah, you would be dead wrong if your hand's up. I hated every minute of it. I didn't want to spend my day moving my son and my daughter-in-law. But you know what? I love my son. I love my daughter-in-law. And love serves. And love sacrifices. And love suffers with. That's just what love does. And God's word says that Jesus came and he demonstrated his love by suffering and sacrificing on a cross. Because that's what love does. And I want you to notice something else. And Here's what I want you to know. If there's no suffering... There's no love. If there's no suffering, there is no love. Especially uh, not in a world that is marred and distorted by sin and where injustice abounds. In that kind of world, love will always suffer with. This is why people stood up in droves, right? And, and stood up and, and, and uh, said, you know, hey, injustice has to stop. Because that's what love does it's just what love does but but we're not done notice something else we see at the end of the story that these three friends get promoted and this is a big deal so we're going to read through it we're going to read through the last three verses of the chapter make a couple more observations then nebuchadnezzar said Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and they defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into pile of rubble for no other God can save in this way. And then we're told that they were promoted. Anybody here notice King Nebuchadnezzar kind of goes to the same line all day long, right? Hey, if you don't do this, I'm going to cut you into pieces and I'm going to pile your house into rubble. This isn't the first time Nebuchadnezzar made this threat. In fact, this is kind of his standard go-to one-liner. And clearly it's effective because he uses it all the time. Right? And he uses it here. And then he goes on to say, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now here's what I want you to see. Listen to me. Look, 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 look. The furnace always comes before promotion. 
because it's in the furnace that we learn to think more like Jesus, act more like Jesus, experience more of Jesus, and know what it's like to be rescued by Jesus. And so the, if anybody wants you know, to grow or be promoted or move up, it's always going to involve a furnace. And there are no shortcuts to this. The way that God's people grow is through trials and difficulties and hardships. God stretches us so that when he lets go, we don't go back as small as we were. There's more elasticity. There's more strength. There's more resiliency, right? The furnace always, always, always results um, in promotion because it's in the furnace that we become more like Jesus. Now, you're, maybe you're here today and you're not a person of faith. Maybe you would say, well, you know what? I, I could never believe in Jesus that way or certainly I could never have the kind of faith in God that these three young men had. Oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. And I'll tell you why. Because when you look at King Nebuchadnezzar, in this story, right? I mean, he's coming around. I mean, he is slowly growing. And this is the way growth always comes. It comes slowly. It doesn't come overnight. It's not usually a lightning bolt. He, Nebuchadnezzar is slowly coming to a greater understanding of who God is and what he's capable of. Now, let me prove it. In Daniel chapter 1, some of you are going to remember this. Daniel is in interpreting the king's dream, and he, he goes to great lengths to say to King Nebuchadnezzar, hey, I'm not doing this. I didn't do this. God did this. My God is great, and he alone is capable of the, this kind of thing. This wasn't me. It was God. And then do you know what Nebuchadnezzar does? He turns around, and he burns incense to Daniel. He didn't hear a thing that Daniel said. It's like everything that Daniel was saying to him was just bouncing right off and falling to the ground. But now, all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, hey, there's no other God that can save the way that this God can. Right? He's coming around. He's changing. And next week, we're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar is going to go even further. He's going to take even another step toward God. And men and women, listen, this is the way that people come to God. They just come a day at a time and a step at a time. And it's gradual and it's slow and that's okay. But we just want you to know if you're a person and you're not a person of faith, right? Like you just look around and you go, I just don't know how they can believe that. We just want you to know we are so grateful. We are so glad that you are here. And we just want to invite you to keep processing and keep thinking and keep chewing and keep having honest conversations with people because that's what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing, right? Now, so what about you? Let me just ask all of you today. Are you growing closer to Jesus day by day or are you growing further apart? What's the trajectory, you know, of your life? Is it toward Jesus or is it away? So I'm just going to ask you, would you be willing to endure the furnace in order to look more like Jesus? Would you be willing to endure the furnace to experience the presence of Jesus? He is with you in the furnace.
This is an amazing thing. God never makes us go into our suffering alone. He is always there, always present, in the furnace, with us. One of my favorite books about pain and suffering is by C.S. Lewis. Some of you um, know that name. He wrote a book years ago called The Problem of Pain. And I just want to read you what he says. This is so insightful. He says this, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us through our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a morally deaf world. Love this. Pain is what makes us in the image of our Savior, and he never makes us endure our pain alone. Isn't that beautiful? That's so beautiful. I'm going to say it again because I wanted to get in there and rattle around just a little bit. God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us through our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a morally deaf world. Pain is what makes us in the image of our Savior, and he never makes us endure our pain alone. So listen, I don't know what all you guys are going through. But you, will you remember that whatever it is that you're going through, that you're not going through it alone today? That Jesus is with you. And he has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. That's our Jesus. Who wouldn't want to be like him? Who wouldn't want to know him? So let me pray for you. And then Pastor Brandon's going to come up and he's going to walk us through together how we're going to respond to him today. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful that you meet us in our pain, that you meet us in our suffering. You didn't have to, but that but we know God now that that's what love does. And so Lord Jesus, we just thank you that you demonstrated your love for us in this while we were still sinners. You died for us. You entered into suffering for us. You took on the wrath of God for us so that we could know today that God is not angry at us. You took it all. And so we give you thanks and praise today and we worship in your mighty name. Amen.